Thanks for tuning in to the CHCA Entrepreneurial Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Carter. In the CHCA Entrepreneurship Program, we make a point of bringing entrepreneurship alongside sustainability and understanding how the entrepreneurs of the future, as problem solvers, will be solving aspects related to sustainable living. And boy, do we have a great podcast episode for you today. Today's guest is Diana Andrew from the Urban Green Lab in Nashville, and she talks about all things related to sustainable living, everything from sustainable food systems to the role of the economy, the environment, and society, to aspects related even to elements of nature and better understanding how to consume less. It's, it's just a great talk, and I'm excited to have you hear it. So up next here as our guest is Diana Andrew. Joining me on the podcast today is Diana Andrew. Diana is the Assistant Director of Programs for Urban Green Lab in Nashville. Diana, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Could you just go ahead and tell us a little bit about Urban Green Lab, uh, what it does, why it started, and perhaps a little bit of background? Of course. So Urban Green Lab is a nonprofit organization in Nashville, Tennessee, and it started in about 2009 because a lot of community members were seeing that there really wasn't a place to learn about sustainable living. There was nowhere to get really good information or training or resources. So they came together to create, at the beginning, the idea was to create a community center around sustainable living. But then we decided that in order to reach the entire city of Nashville, we wanted to create kind of a mobile model and be able to reach communities where they are. So now our mission is to teach communities how to live sustainably. So we work with schools, corporations, other nonprofits, community groups, anyone really who's interested in learning about sustainable living. And we do training, we do workshops, uh, personalized coaching for these organizations on how to make their organization more sustainable, but mostly just how to make better choices every day to, you know, conserve resources and live in a more sustainable manner. Now, you've already pretty much answered this question by conserving resources and living in a sustainable manner, but I, I do want to backtrack a little bit because the word sustainability gets thrown around so often in our society, and I feel like it can be used when talking about being fiscally responsible, it can, it can be used when it comes to environmentally friendly, and it can be used when it comes to just thinking about long-term aspects. So when you use the word sustainable in the mission of Urban Green Lab, what is it exactly? that that word means? That is a very good question. So there is not one specific definition of sustainability or, or being sustainable. There have been some in the past, especially from the UN in the 80s, around more conserving natural resources. But for Urban Green Lab, we use a definition from a researcher, Julian Ageman from 2003 and his colleagues called Just Sustainability. And what that is, is the need to provide um, a quality of life for all, to ensure a better quality of life for all now and into the future in a just and equitable manner while living within the limits of our ecosystems. So that's pretty long, but for us, what it really means is balancing not only the environmental needs, but our social equity needs and also our economic needs. 
So for us, sustainability is a balance of all three of those pillars, as we call them. So the environment, economy, and society. So for us, it's really about making choices that really take into account all three of those aspects so that we can ensure a better quality of life for everyone in our community. I'm really glad that you put it like that, because I think so often we think of these pillars individually. We want to make a decision that's good for the economy, and then that will come at the cost of the environment or society at large. And so when you are, you know, with Urban Green Lab thinking through sustainable practices, you're considering it across all of these different areas. This is sustainable, you know, for the environment, but it doesn't necessarily have to hurt the economy. It can it can also come together and society as a whole. I mean, that description, as I heard it, is really one of the best descriptions I've heard of sustainability. So thank you. <laughs> that, that definitely clarifies things. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's really important to us because, as you said, we one of our values is that sustainability is for everyone. It's for all people. And there's been kind of a misconception in the past about, you know, if sustainability is only about going solar or it's only about, you know, using really expensive, sustainable green products that it, it may not be accessible to everyone. And that's not what we try to educate about. We try to share that it needs to be a balance of all three of those factors for your own personal choices. So no one's situation is the same. And you know, when we try to share about living sustainably, we wanna make sure it's something you can do easily in your own life. So, you know, no one's perfect and nothing is perfectly sustainable, but we want to try to make those choices easier for, for you and your situation. Absolutely. When you talk about this being for everyone and something that everybody can buy into, I find that interesting because there is at times a sort of stigma placed on you know, missions and ideas around sustainability that it becomes almost a political movement and then can ostracize people based on their political persuasions and so on. So when you say sustainability is for everyone and when you talk about how this is about a better quality of life for all, how do you, or, or do you rather, take that out of a political equation? Or what happens when it comes down to party lines and differences like that? That's really, really good question and really difficult. Yeah, so we as an educational nonprofit don't really get involved in politics very much, but we, I absolutely see what you're saying that in the, in the past there has been some politicization of, of this issue. But for us, because it's about the well-being of everybody, we really think that it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be related to politics and it really shouldn't have that kind of stigma because what we're fighting for is to, in general, just conserve the resources we all need to be happy and healthy. And there has been also a historical uh, incidence where you know people who are of, higher, of lower income or are uh, vulnerable populations are, have not been protected as much as other people. So for us too, for that societal equity piece, um, it is important to ensure that it is for everyone. And for us, it's a no brainer because, you know, we want to ensure everyone's healthy and the people who are actually uh, receiving, you know, some of the negative consequences of our actions are actually the most vulnerable people. So for us, that's not political. It's uh, we want to be able to support everyone. And so that's what we strive for is to educate everybody so that we can all make better choices. And I'm glad you said the word educate because you are heavily involved in the educational aspects of Urban Green Lab and really promoting curriculum and training teachers and understanding that for major change to take place, it has to happen at the level of education. One thing I myself am an educator and one thing I've noticed in the classroom is when topics like this come up, 
they can really go in one of two different directions. And it's either the sort of pessimistic overview where, you know, the teacher's up there saying, okay, here's climate change, here's rising ocean levels, here's, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, there's no hope, uh, you know, it's all, you know, just just do what you need to do for the next few years. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not looking too good. Then there's also that optimistic turn of, you know, if we're going to change this, it's going to require change at the educational level and policy reform and things like that. And my, my question for you is, how do you navigate between the sort of pessimistic outlook of the state where we currently are and the optimistic idea of where we can be and where we should be headed? Where's that middle ground or how do you navigate those waters? It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. And we talk about that a lot in our presentations. We try to find a good balance there because we want everyone to understand how dire the situation is. You know, we are really are facing consequences, not only in our local communities, but all over the world and for our entire planet. And so it can be hard to hear that over and over again, you know, that we have all these negative things happening, but we want people to understand the actual science and the background of it. So for us, you know, we're realizing that there's been a shift in the community where and in our country at least, where the majority of people understand it's happening. The majority of people see pollution in their community. They see the impacts of climate change. The majority of people kind of understand that there's that there are some issues we need to tackle. So we try to spend, you know, the beginning of our education on these issues and that when we tailor them to our communities, depending on what they're concerned about. So if it's wildlife or green space or air pollution or, you know, lack of transportation, things like that. And then what we really try to focus the majority of our training on are those sustainable choices. So what can you do? What can we do as a community to get better? And we really try to uplift people in the fact that they, we try to empower them to know that we can make a difference. We really can. It feels insurmountable sometimes, but we see examples of this all over the world. We see examples of governments turning things around, communities and themselves coming up together and deciding that the way that they use resources will be different and collaboration. So we see examples of this all over the world where, you know, we can provide solutions. It just takes everybody really coming together and deciding that it's important. So we try to focus on the positive aspects of it as much as we can. Sure. And I'm sure that's challenging at times, but it obviously does have uh, its payoff and its dividends if you can maintain that. I do have a question when you're dealing specifically with an individual. You mentioned both community level and also individuals. An individual who says, you know what, I I want to live a sustainable life. Uh, you've used the term before, sustainable living. And you've defined sustainability. You've talked about some of these initiatives. But when you have an individual come to you and say, like, what, what do I do? What, what does it take? Because, you know, you could talk about food waste. You could talk about energy conservation. You could talk about lifestyle choices. And, and that itself can be a little overwhelming. So where do you start with that? Right. So that is a conversation sort of one-on-one -on -one every time. So like you said, there's so many different things that we can change in our lifestyles to become more sustainable, and it can be a little overwhelming. So for us, we want to have a conversation with them, learn about what they're really struggling with or what they really care about, and then start there. So something often a lot of people feel really connected to is our food. That's really an easy kind of place to start is, you know, what are you eating and what's your diet and how much food do you waste? You know, nationally, we waste 40% of our food, which is really um, remarkable, especially when one in six people are food insecure. So it's a lot of astounding people, number. 
yeah, it's incredible. So a lot of people care about that. So, and that's kind of an easy thing to start with, or, you know, things about waste. A lot of people are on the recycling train and have questions about it. So you can talk with them about that. Um, I think what's good is to start with something small, start with something that you really care about, because once it becomes a habit, you'll open up your mind a little more, you'll start to see things differently. And a, and a big part of it for us too is teaching people to look through a lens of sustainability. So it's not about necessarily a checklist or all the right things you have to do, but it's about now that you know what sustainability is and you kind of see the consequences, it's more about just changing the way you see things, changing the way you make decisions. So if I'm gonna buy something at the store or if I'm gonna decide that I'll drive or take the bus today, it's about looking through the lens of sustainability. I really want to improve quality of life for everyone. So in this choice that I'm making today, what's the most sustainable for me? And again, there is no perfect right answer. It depends on your scenario. So we do just try to get people to start with a couple things that they care about and that are easy for them. And then as you practice it, it gets easier. You're now the assistant director of programs at Urban Green Lab. But I mean, once upon a time, you were also a student in high school, much like many of our listeners. And I'm guessing that you yourself have experienced a bit of a journey from someone who, you know, first began to learn about these aspects to someone who now is on the forefront of an organization that is attempting to create change to bring about, you know, positive benefits with regard to sustainability. Could you just tell us a little bit about your own personal journey and how you how you first became interested or passionate about this subject? I would love to. Yeah. So growing up, I mean, we, it really started with food. So similar to what I mentioned before, I really am connected to food and we always had a garden in the backyard and I lived in the middle of Nashville, Tennessee. So in an urban area, you know, I wasn't raised on farms and didn't really know exactly where my food was coming from, but we did have a small little garden in the back. And that was one of my favorite ways to just connect with nature was go outside, dig in the dirt, you know, play in the yard. And I just started to realize that was important to me. And I liked that feeling of being outside in the dirt, you know, and realizing not everyone does that and not everyone has access to that. And so that's sort of where the seed really just started immediately. But then as I started to go through school, started learning about these impacts and learning about how we impact wildlife and our land and our air, it just seemed so frustrating to me that you know, we, there's so many consequences that are hard to see, but once you learn about them, it just felt like I was called to do something, you know, and whether it was small changes in my life or actually working in this career, I just knew I needed to do something about it. So, you know, I studied environmental science in high school and then decided to study that in college. So I went to my undergraduate in Chattanooga and studied environmental science. And when you're there, you choose if you're going to study deep science, biology, chemistry, or I actually chose the sociology route. So I really wanted to learn about how people interact with the environment and how, what our thought process is and how we care about, about the world and the earth beneath us. And so I studied that and then went right back to food where in my master's degree, I studied sustainable practices and food systems. So I wanted to learn about these issues. Why, you know, why are we wasting so much food and why are people still experiencing hunger? So I really wanted to learn about sustainable food systems. How can we make those connections and that's what I'll say is really important to me is sustainability is all about the interrelatedness of everything. So how those three pillars overlap and interact, it's all about how our resources are inter interconnected. So we can affect others, we can affect the entire planet. So for me, it was about learning those connections between systems and how can we do that better. I, I love that story. There's so much in there that I, that I want to... Uh you know, pull out and discuss a little bit more your connection to the garden at an early age, getting your hands dirty. 
I've been reading quite a bit recently about the um, kind of nature deficit disorder in, in many of our today's youth who, um, if anything, I, you know, one good thing from quarantine, perhaps, uh, that I've seen has been a little bit more of an adventuresome sense of, well, I, I can't go to the mall, I can't go to the movie theater, I might as well go outside. And, you know, uh, in fact, I have I live in a neighborhood where we have a little trail that goes down to a creek. And typically that trail is just empty. You just go down there, there's nobody. But during COVID, I, you know, always see teenagers hanging out and they're hanging out in the woods. And I, at first I'm like, well, everyone found my trail. What's going on? But now I'm like, oh, this is actually really good because they're outside. They strung a hammock from two trees. They're, you know, walking through the leaves. And uh, it, it just seems like today's youth, really, once they're introduced, or really, I should say, reintroduced to nature, they, they love it. But yet something has happened that almost, you know, keeps them from experiencing that. So to what extent would you say that education or initiatives like yours can help bring students back to nature? Right, right. Yeah. So we see that a lot too. And and I think that our youth and really everyone has so much more anxiety and stress than we have had maybe in past generations. And so we're seeing that as well, that when students get outside or when they realize they can make an impact, it really empowers them and almost just relieves a little bit of that stress. So I see that as well. And I love that example because you get to see just how, you know, happy everyone is really when they go outside usually. So yeah, so for us, it's it's all about, you know, connecting students and people with knowing they have an impact. And so when we are stuck inside and we don't connect with nature, it's hard to see that impact. It's hard to see, you know, what else is there out there in the world besides my room and my friends and my community. But once you get outside and once you start interacting with other living things, you know, you really can feel more connected to our roots and to our earth that sustains us. Um, and it sounds a little you know, lofty and kind of kind of hippie to say that, but really, you know, it really does change something in you, I think, when you can connect back with just other living items. Um, and so for us, you know, there's a lot of environmental education out there. And for us, sustainability education is a little bit more about how our personal choices, even when we're inside, can affect the outside. So we do get kids out, but we also talk a lot about their daily activity, even in, in their houses or in their schools, how that can affect the outside environment. So I think it really helps them connect those two things, um, not only kind of seeing the outside and outdoors, but how does how do my choices affect it? Sure. And you mentioned how really that, even at an early age, contributed to your knowledge of food system sustainability because you were gardening and seeing that related. So as you pursued your degree and your further education into sustainable food systems, you mentioned um, one startling statistic that 40% of the food produced is wasted. And yet we still have people who are in situations of hunger, starvation. We have food deserts. We have food insecurity that's rampant in the United States. What were some other startling revelations that you made as you studied sustainable food systems? Right. Those are those were definitely shocking because you always think so, sort of that if we put all this effort into doing something, you, you would normally never waste it, right? We would never leave the grocery store with five bags and leave two in the parking lot. Right. And that's what we do. You know, we waste... 40% of our food. So it, so that seems shocking, but even more so too, how our food is produced. I, you know, most people aren't producing their own food. You know, most people aren't farming their own food and some do. And, and so if you don't have that connection, you really don't mostly think about how far it's coming or how it's being grown. So I was shocked to learn about industrialized food systems. I was shocked to learn 
really how our food is grown and, and more agricultural systems and where it's grown. Um, and also the import export system, just how much food we create that's exported, how much food we create that's imported. And it, and it seems as though, you know, having a closer knit food system where you're, you're growing food closer to the people that need it and you can make those connections, those seem to be more successful in terms of reducing food insecurity and increasing health. And so it was staggering to me to just learn the amount of land we use for food production and the amount of water we use for food production and then how much of that is wasted. Simil similarly, the amount we use, you know, for meat production and things like that. Um, and how our consumption of some of these goods are just uh, an incredibly high amount uh, more than they were, you know, 20, 40 years ago. I love what you're saying about that local connection and how really it does change things. It's obviously far more sustainable because the produce isn't traveling halfway across the world. It's coming from the farm 20 miles away. And I've, I've noticed in my own life that that experience of knowing where it's grown and, you know, being able to identify the face of the person who grew it, it makes it taste better. It's like you, you eat this and you're like, this isn't just kale that I bought at the grocery store from some random farm. This is kale that, you know, the farm down the road produced. I bought it at the farmer's market and I'm going to make sure I use every bit of it, you know, and, and, and so on. So I, I, I like what you're saying. I think it really does change our perspective. I totally agree. I think that when you have more connection to anything, you're going to really value it more. You're going to value that thing more and you're going to derive more joy, joy from that item. So for me, if I'm buying something, you know, whether it's a piece of art or food that was produced in my own community, I feel like I'm going to be a little more connected to it and value it, value it more. Now, when it comes to like, for instance, if we take the issue of food waste and we're like, okay, let's, let's really make this a topic that we raise awareness about. So people begin to make changes this is a topic that is institutional on some level, but also individual. You talked about the person going to the grocery store and that notion that you had of, you know, here are your five bags, you're leaving two in the parking lot. That's striking. That, that, that hits me and it's like, whoa, that's a lot, you know, because those five bags, you know, I just spent $130 at the grocery store. I'm leaving quite a bit of money in the parking lot, but that's the individual consumer. So, when you think about these changes that need to happen to deal with aspects of food waste, what does that look like on the larger scale with the grocery store change, the restaurants and the industrialized food system? You know, we hear these stories in the news about, you know, farmers where the supply chain is cut off for whatever reason. And then all of that gets wasted and all of that, like, like the milk that was being dumped from the dairy farms uh, during the quarantine time. What are the institutional changes that would need to take place? to begin to combat this food waste issue? Yeah, there, there's quite a lot. And I mean, when I think about institutional changes too, we work with corporations and larger companies rather than individuals too. So I'll address that, but then also the growers and those systems. So for us, I mean, the majority of our food waste happening isn't really on that consumer level. It's either at the farm, like you said, where it's being left on the farm, or it's in that distribution channel where it's just not being sent to the right place or it's we're losing it in transit. Um, you know, or it's in things like catering and large food producers and, um, you know, things like hotels and convention centers where there's so much food that's being wasted. Um, and it's, for me, it's really just that it, we're, we're missing connections there. We're missing, you know, the thought process from the beginning to the end. You know, a lot of, a lot of times in these processes, we just need to get the food out. Um, and similar to, you know, any kind of restaurant, you just want to have the best product out there so people can see it and it's all about sales. But we don't really think about the end 
the end game. And, and more times than not, it's actually better for you economically to really think about that whole process to reduce your waste and reduce your cost. So there's tons of things organizations can do in terms of reducing their own food waste um, in places like hotels or organizations. But in terms of even larger than that, in the entire food system, again, smaller systems are easier to control. So, so it's you know easier for a smaller farm if they have some leftover food to connect with the food bank and get that donated. But the amount of food we produce in the scale in this country is is incredibly difficult to create those support systems. You know, food banks and other kind of last mile organizations don't have the capability to to really rescue all of that food coming off the farm. It, there just isn't enough um, transportation and logistics. So. So, you know, I think it really needs to start on the large production side. We need to think about, you know, is bigger always better and is more always more efficient, you know, and just really reconsider how we build our food systems. Um, so it's all about what we grow and how we distribute it. I think distribution and creating a, a closed loop system in our own communities is, is really the best, best possible option. Now, when you mentioned this, you were talking about some of the corporations that were making decisions and how this would be in their financial benefit in, in many ways, you know, to recover that food, because that's that's not just 40 percent of, of food waste. That's 40 percent of profit lost in many in many cases. Um, and so here here's a question for you that that I, I've been wrestling with recently at, at our school, uh, Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy. We have a student run coffee bar. And several years ago, we decided that we wanted to use this coffee bar as a model to demonstrate sustainable practices with business. So we had been purchasing milk from the grocery store. We switched to milk from a local producer, grass-fed, non-homogenized. So the health benefits were clear. And the milk came in glass bottles that we could rinse and then send back so they'd be reused. Uh, so we were limiting our carbon footprint in that way. We began serving the takeaway products in compostable products and we hired a compost service to come take it away. And you know, we, we did all of these steps. And as a result, I mean, it, it, it went over great. The, uh, the product tastes better. The ingredients are of a higher quality, but the cost was astronomic. I mean, just out the roof from our profit margin originally to what it ended up being later. You know, you're going from $1.39 milk at the grocery store to $6 milk from this local farm. And I imagine that this is the case in many different avenues when people, individuals, or businesses, they decided to go sustainable. And then all of a sudden it's like, we can't afford to do that. And I'm sure on some level, that's also an illusion. You know, there are probably ways around that. So when someone brings that issue up with you, the cost of going sustainable, I can't afford to go sustainable. How do you respond to that? Yeah, that's a really hard question. And it's, as you said, sometimes it is true and sometimes it's an illusion. So it's just got to be case by case basis. Um, and for and for the larger sustainability discussion, it, it's always about kind of long term. It's long term impacts, long term rewards. And usually when you're talking about something like solar or like, you know, long term health benefits of, of something like go eating more sustainable food, it's a little harder to see because it is a longer term uh, return. And so that is complicated and difficult. And in our society, we really want immediate gratification and we want those immediate returns. So it's a little bit about shifting our focus to realizing that a better quality of life for all means for a very long time. So looking long term can usually help kind of see those benefits. But in a scenario like yours, where it's it is sort of a smaller scale and and those really those items really are more expensive, it is difficult for sure. We we 
see that as well in our schools. We don't have a commercial composting system in our schools yet either because of the cost. And half of that is the scale of production. Like we said, industrialized scales, the, the bigger the scale, the cheaper the product usually can be. Um, but it ends up to not be as sustainable. And, you, and those big disrupt, disruptions in the system can really impact those products. And so that's what we've seen, like you said, in the, in, during COVID. Um, but another part of that is how we subsidize our food system, how we subsidize our oil. Um, plastic is made from oil. So typically plastic uh, materials are cheaper. They're cheaper than glass. And, and even recycled glass doesn't really have a large uh, market. So you're right, sometimes those materials, you just can't get away from the cost and the, and the inexpensiveness of those products because they're made out of a product that our, that our government is subsidizing. So it's, it, it's complicated because it can be on the government level, but it's also in every scenario, we just try to find the balance of the priorities. So like I said, you know, we wanna do something that works for your team and your life. So if your priority is health or your priority is less waste, you just have to kind of decide if it's worth the balance of that economic, environmental, and social sustainability. Absolutely. How how would one go about, maybe not, I shouldn't have said one, but um, government subsidies is obviously a big issue when it comes to the food system, because what we subsidize is therefore what is going to be grown. So when you look at the corn, the wheat, the soy, and these big uh, industrial farms that are growing this because of government subsidies, obviously there's an incentive for them to keep doing that. And is, is that something that, I mean, is that something that can change? Is that something that we can redirect those subsidies towards sustainable methods? And if so, what, what's involved in that? Is that lobbying? I mean, how, how do you even go to, about tackling something like that? That's a hard question. Yeah, it's, it's a big system. I mean, anything can change. So my answer to that is yes, it can change. Um, it, it would be very complicated. And I think it's a huge uh, shift in our economy. And we want to, we want to support our farmers. And we really want to ensure that we are producing the goods that we need, but we definitely overproduce some crops that we don't need to be uh, taking up a lot of land space for. So it is complicated. I think the answer is always to vote uh, for the for the people that you believe are supporting the right causes and sustainability in general. But yeah, I think it would be a pretty long road probably to shift over to a more sustainable model nationally when it comes to how we fund these programs, but definitely vote and definitely, uh, you know, speak out for those types of initiatives that you agree with and that you think would be more sustainable because if the entire country was supportive of it, then we would definitely shift. Absolutely. And that's why, obviously, you've dedicated so much to education and to raising awareness about this. And, you know, in my experience, there's often this idea, this notion that the only way to live sustainably is that going back to that whole kind of 70s era live off the land idea where you leave the big city and you go to the farm and you grow your own food and you have a dairy cow, you know, and, 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 you, and you, you form a community around that. But that's not necessarily a feasible option for everybody. So, I mean, is it possible to still live sustainably in a big city? Absolutely. Yes. So we are Urban Grade Lab. We work in an urban city that's growing immensely. And so absolutely, you can live sustainably in an, in an urban environment. So again, there's no perfect way to be sustainable. There's no like cut off of what sustainability is or isn't. You know, we try to really encourage those choices that are balanced and that you're thinking long-term about the choices in your life. So there are definitely things you can do living in an urban environment to be sustainable. And, and a lot of those are related to 
you know, your living space and your transportation and your diet. So we all know that transportation and diet and agriculture are the largest contributors to our climate changing. And so you can, you can change that anywhere, wherever you live. So in an urban environment, you almost, you might have a better opportunity to have a more sustainable transportation uh, option. And you actually also might have a better opportunity to live in a condensed living space. So you are taking up less land in your living space. Um, so things like, you know, ensuring that you're conserving resources in your own home and your own life daily, that's sustainable. That's living sustainable. So you can do that anywhere. Um, so, you know, if you are living in a city, you can ensure that you're not wasting energy at home, you're not wasting water at home, and you're trying to just be connected to your community, even in, in an urban environment. So can you give us some very specific examples? You mentioned conserve energy, conserve water. I mean, you know, here we're, we're you know, many of our listeners are going to be in Cincinnati, Ohio, and, you know, both uh, the suburban atmosphere and also some of the urban atmosphere, many high school students. What are some tips that you have? You know, like here's here's something you can do or at least try that would make your life a little more sustainable. Any any specifics on that? Yeah, there's tons. I'm trying to think of maybe my favorites, but for me, it's all about consuming less. So, you know, we love to buy things. We love to use as much as we want, you know, and when it's abundant, then it's easy. It's easy for us to kind of use as much water as we want because it's pretty inexpensive. Uh, but once you kind of realize the whole background and the consequences, then you're able to make those daily choices. So for me, it's all about reducing consumption. I don't need to leave the tap running when I am brushing my teeth or getting ready and I can take a little bit shorter shower, um, just get ready a little bit faster, you know? And then things like energy, it's small things that are easy to forget, but using a power strip and turning it off. When we go out of town, we even unplug our Wi-Fi and our routers because we don't need them while we're gone, you know? So any kind of electronics that are plugged in or being used, you know, or even if you're not using them are probably pulling an energy source. So you could, you know, unplug all of your electronics, use things like sleep modes to ensure that you're not just running electronics when you don't need them. Uh, and then just reducing your waste as you consume products. So trying to buy less plastic, trying to bring your reusable grocery bags to the store, trying to reuse material rather than throwing it away. So getting creative about some of the waste you might produce in your life. It depends on what your hobbies are and what you're into. You might need to use disposables or you might need to use some products that are hard to recycle, but you can always look around and see, could you reuse them? Could you find a better home for them? Like donating those items or creating art out of them or something like that. So those are some really small, simple ones, but there's a ton of things. I try to reduce my meat consumption. You know, it's hard to go totally vegetarian or totally vegan, but even just eating one less meal of meat per week can really make a big difference in our climate uh, because of how our meat is grown in this, in this country and produced in the country. So there's some small things you can do that will make a big difference, especially if you do them every day and they add up. Now, you mentioned reuse and be creative, and I'm already thinking like this is going to be really interesting for many of our students. Can you remember any of the really creative reuses of things that you've seen or come across? Oh, I'll have to think about that a little bit more. I do see a lot of just art pieces. We have an incredible nonprofit here called Turnip Green Creative Reuse, and they do that. They create art out of all kinds of materials. So used uh, VHS tapes or used, um, you know, cassette tapes or things like that, things you can't recycle, but you can't really use anymore in today's uh, entertainment. So creating just art pieces out of them. Um, 
trying to think of something that's a little more useful. Um, I'll have to keep thinking about sure. it. Sure. Well, and I, I've seen, I've seen the art. In fact, we have a class at our, at our school, um, on the art of repurposing. And it's all about taking these items that you wouldn't use anymore and turning them into art. And, and the things that come out of that are remarkable. It's like, wow, you know, uh, obviously that used to have a use, but it's great that you've been able to put that towards something. And uh, an, another piece of this, you know, in, in speaking directly to students or groups of students like you do regularly with your educational programs, you, I imagine, have noticed what many other educators have noticed, which is generationally speaking, our current generation of students, you know, both um, high school and college, seem to have a more innate sense of awareness toward sustainability and sustainable practices than many of the previous generations. I know speaking for myself, when I was in school, this wasn't a topic. This wasn't something that, you know, I mean, yeah, we had the one art teacher who was like the one who's like, oh, you need to do this. And we're, we all thought she was kind of weird. But, you know, it wasn't just a major topic or concern. So have you seen that in your own work, that there's almost a generational awareness toward these things or a greater appreciation for it? At times, yeah. It, it sort of depends on your population of people you're talking to. And also just thinking back about our grandparents and our great-grandparents and how, you know, during times where they needed to conserve resources, they, they would. And so it's all about, again, the availability of those resources in your life. If you have abundant resources, then it's harder to conserve. So I think in our communities, you know, really looking back to how previous generations lived actually um, can be helpful, you know, learning how to garden and can and cook and, and reuse things is, was common with those generations as well. But yeah, the new generation is definitely aware and they are really incredibly, you know, doing work towards climate action and, and all these great initiatives. And so, yeah, I think we see a lot of kids that already get it, like we'll be, you know, doing a workshop or something and they already live it. They're already doing it. So they already know it's important and they're asking adults to, who are empowered to really get on board and make a change so that we can really protect uh, the quality of life for everybody because they already see, they've already seen the impacts of our choices over the last couple generations. Now, you obviously create programming and you work with students and in that you come across a lot of teachers. And I would venture to guess the teachers are really excited to, you know, hear about the programs. And there's also probably occasional fear of how do I implement this in my already kind of overburdened classroom where I have to meet state standards and follow these, these different aspects. So what have you experienced so far in directly working with teachers on these sustainable practices in the classroom that have been beneficial? Right. So our goal was exactly that, to not make this another thing teachers have to do, to not create a burden and to not add to their workload because we know teachers are extremely busy. So, and there's so much sustainability and environmental education out there already. They have a lot of tools and resources, but what we heard from them was it was hard to just get started, which is really similar to a lot of people's reaction about living sustainably. It's hard to just know where to start. So what we did is just create a small set of lessons, a really small set of seven lessons to just implement wherever it fit in their curriculum. So it was tied to our state standards and we allowed them to just fit it in where it made sense for them. And then it piqued their interest. So then we are around as a resource to provide them additional projects, additional lessons to get their students excited about it. So we see a lot of teachers come in curious and then after they start, they really find where it makes sense for their students. That's another important aspect of what we do is 
you know, it's not going to be the same conversation with every community and every school. So we try to find what they're interested in and then really dive deeper into what, whether it's food or transportation or energy or green jobs or things like that. Now, you mentioned, you know, we've, we've got a lot, a wealth of information here to think about from, you know, food waste to sustainable practices to the three pillars you mentioned early on, the economic, the environment, society, a lot of great ideas and practices and uh, inspiration, really, from this podcast. Um, do you have any, you know, for a student who might want more information or someone who might say, I want to find out more about this, are there resources, are there books or movies or documentaries or something that you would point those who are interested toward? There are so many. I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, there are so many great resources. Um, it's almost a little overwhelming how much there is out there. But it, again, it would sort of depend on their interest. So there's a ton of information about sustainable living, depending on which kind of area you want to jump into first. But overall, I would say that a great resource are the sustainable development goals, what we call the SDGs. So those are nationally created by the UN. And there's 17 goals that they've decided that we really need to work on to make our communities more sustainable. And they are things like energy conservation, water conservation, but they're also things like educating women and girls around the country, um, creating more equity. And so those are really easy, a really great place to go find good information. And they have really easy steps on what you can do for each of those goals. So for something like water conservation, they have, you know, six or seven things you can do right now. So I suggest the sustainable development goals. And then also we have some home investigations on our website that we created for our students to take home and explore sustainability in their own homes. So if you do come to urbangreenlab.org and go do our six home investigations, there's some quick questions in there about, you know, what kind of light bulbs do you have in your home and how much water are you using each day? The average amount is 80 gallons per day. So are you using more or less than that? And then finding some tips on how to live more sustainably. So that would be a good one as well. And just then to there's touch just, on that really quickly. Yeah, so you sure. said 80 gallons a day. Per person. Whole, per person. That's not just a whole household. That's per person. No, the household average is 300 gallons per that's, day. <laughs> that's insane. Wow. I had, like, I had no idea it was that high. Yeah, and we have a little log in there where you can try to keep track a little bit every day of how much water you use. And I was surprised I was more than 80. So it just depends on your activities. It depends on how many times you're showering, those kind of things. But then small things like watering your yard and if you're doing laundry or dishwasher and those types of things. So just keeping sort of having that in your head to try to understand how many resources we're using throughout the day and just make little tweaks to reduce it. But there's tons and tons of great books and great documentaries out there. Um, I I almost am having a hard time just picking one, but you know, there's great information on whether it's climate change or food sustainability. There's a great documentary called Wasted about um, food waste. There's, you know, the original Food Inc., which is all about our food system and how, you know, the industrialized food system affects our, our ability to access food and sustainability of food. Um, and then I'll have to think of a bunch more, but I can send them to you. There's tons though. Excellent. <laughs> and you excellent. can check out our, yeah, you can check out our blogs and socials because we usually try to shout them out. Now, one of the questions that I have been asking a lot of our guests is if they had a chance to go back and give themselves advice as a high school student, perhaps as an early college student, and it might be advice related to what you're currently doing. It could, it could just be advice, a life advice that you kind of wish you had known. Uh, what would be a piece of advice that you would like to go back and give to yourself? 
Oh, that's a really great question. I think I have almost two things. One would be just try. One would be, you know, it can, as we said, it can be overwhelming. It can be a little hard to know where to start, but just try some things and they're not all going to work for you. We talk a lot about it being a lab of exploration in your life about sustainability. Not everything will work. I, I tried bamboo toothbrushes and I hated them. So it just depends on your own preference and your own lifestyle, but just try things and see if they work for you. And then another thing would be that you can be sustainable in any career. You can be sustainable in any time of your life in any place of your life. So again, you don't have to go live on that farm and you don't have to work in sustainability to have a green job. You can bring the lens of sustainability that we talked about to any career. So if you're in advertising, if you're in, you know, any type of field, you can really bring that lens to your own work, which will make you unique and will, you know, be able to provide some, some great input and advice to your team about how they should be operating. And it can usually, it's usually seen as a very valuable skill set. So for me, it would be, you know, I can bring sustainability into any field. And I think it's really important for everyone to know that as they decide what they're going to do with their career. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Deanna, thank you so much for taking your time to be with us today on this podcast and your information was uh, truly invaluable. So thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And I'm glad that your students have you around because this is some great information that they're going to remember forever. Absolutely. Thank you. Deanna Andrew was the guest on today's episode of the CHCA Entrepreneurial Podcast. Deanna is the Assistant Director of Programs for Urban Green Lab in Nashville. To learn more about Deanna or her organization, check out urbangreenlab.org. This concludes this episode of the CHCA Entrepreneurial Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive future episodes.